This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, does the Bible condone slavery? And we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience in Melbourne's CBD, but instead today I'm at Macquarie University in Sydney for a special recording. My guest is Professor Edwin Judge. Professor Judge is one of the most distinguished academic figures in modern Australia. He is Emeritus Professor of History at Macquarie University and founded several ancient history research centres and academic journals. He was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 1995 and he joins me now. Edwin, welcome to Bigger Questions. Well, thank you. It's wonderful that you could join me here today. Now, Edwin, you're a Christian believer. Can you tell us how that happened? What convinced you to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I don't actually claim to be a follower of Jesus. I reserve that honour for those who actually did follow him. <laughs> and I, I justify saying that by the observation which you should remember that um, Paul certainly did not claim to be a follower of Jesus. Right. Nor did anybody in the New Testament epistles. The term was not used. Even the term disciple went out of use. And disciple meaning the students of Jesus mm. um, and the followers, the honour of that was reserved to those who packed their bags and went. Mm. Now, there are people like that today who go and I reserve to them the claim to be followers of Jesus. I haven't packed my bags and gone anywhere. Right, okay. So how would you describe yourself then, a, a, a Christian believer? I don't actually like the word Christian either. Right. Um, <laughs> because... It, it was a categorising word. There's an element of logic creeping in here. It's a Latin word in origin, although we know it first in Greek, and it's an observation by Latin speakers in Antioch, one assumes, because that's where Acts says it began, yes. that expressed a Roman's way of thinking about something they couldn't understand, and the inflection, the I-A-N part, is... Um, a, a partisanship term, so that Christiani are the ones in the outside observer's view who are partisans of Christ. Call me that, a partisan of Christ. <laughs> so what convinced you to be a partisan of Christ? St Paul did. Right. Um, I, I was brought up in going to church. I have never been converted. I have tried to deconvert often enough, mm -hmm. but sitting at the age of 16 in a classroom in Christchurch, New Zealand, we had under the law of the land to read in that year uh, the epistles of St. Paul <clears throat> silently, no comment allowed from the teacher or anybody else, no visiting expert, just on our own. That mm -hmm. was the New Zealand State High School system. And for the first time in my life, after going to church for 16 years, <clears throat> I found myself actually reading the letters of St. Paul, and I was captivated by them. Mm. That's why I blame him. <laughs> and it's never, I've never let it go, and I know for certain this is right. I'm not making this up, because I know also that I said to the careers advisor at the end of that year, my last year at high school, I want to study the classical literature, which I was a primary student of, Latin was my key subject, 
and the Bible together. Well, so what was it that captured you about the writings of St Paul? I don't know what it was at the time, <clears throat> but I know I, wa- I would analyse it now is it was the historicity of them. Well, now the topic for today is slavery in the ancient world. Before we speak specifically about slavery, let's maybe just think about life in the ancient world. What was life like for the average person in the ancient world? Who is average? If you're in the countryside, you're locked into a tedious seasonal round of hard labour. If, however, you lived in the first century AD, for example, in one of the thousand different so-called cities of the Roman world, um, it was there was a civilised core to it. You could be educated, you could go to the theatre, you could see the gladiators in the arena, um, you could live um, an integrated, urbanised life with food brought in by the hard labour of the villages around you. It was very much more like modern life, modern city life, uh, than the other extreme, which I've mentioned, mm. the, the actual hard labour that produces the food. Mm. So how did slavery then fit in with the life in the ancient world? Slavery was part of everybody's household experience. Every household tended to have at least a servant or two. And remember, when our Bible translations use the word servant all the time, it's just the word for slave. Mm. It's just that for some reason our translators don't like the abruptness of translating it by its proper translation as slave. Mm. So they say servant. But servant is just a Latin word for slave. Mm. That's all. And there's no doubt about this. So that servitude and slavery is omnipresent in ordinary domestic life. I think it would be reasonable to assume that St Paul had a servant or two uh, supporting him. That's why he was so interested in writing to Philemon about a new one who'd turned up who he wanted to co-opt, Onesimus, who had walked out apparently on his proper owner, Philemon, Mm. and made his way to Rome. This is an open society we're talking about with freedom to travel. Paul had great freedom to travel, organised it, took work. You had to protect yourself against brigands, Mm. so you needed people travelling with you to do that. Yeah. people to do your work, write your letters for you. He didn't mm. write his letters himself. He signed them off when somebody else had written them. Mm. I don't mean composed them, but somebody else had done the hard work of penmanship for him. Mm. So, and at all sorts of things, particularly in urban life, you had people to do the technical work for you. Medicine was done by people in slavery. Most of the technical skilled things and professional things, accounting, for example, um, just managing a business. Um, running the Roman Empire itself was done by people in slavery mm. Mm. or recently manumitted from slavery. Mm. Well, so then what were the reasons that people would enter slavery? Like how, how would they become slaves in the first place? You can put yourself up for sale in the slave market if your life is miserable enough mm-hmm. in the hope of, we know of one case, I can't give you the reference, where somebody was sick to death of being persecuted by his owner, he put himself up for sale hoping to get a better owner. (laughs) Um, No one questioned the fact that you could buy and sell in the slave market. Mm. The question is where did the trade come from? And classically the way a slave market was um, met was by conquering a neighbouring people Mm. and that happened to the Jews. In the first century before Christ, uh, a, a mass a captivity of people after the 
capture of Jerusalem by Pompeius, um, there was a mass uh, enslavement of Jewish people settled in Rome, and that's why there were many synagogues in Rome a century later. Uh, those people hadn't necessarily continued in slavery, but they'd been put onto the slave market, bought up, transported to Rome, and they dug in, and during the immense, by the emancipatory method that was available, they would have um, passed on into freedman status and eventually into Roman citizenship. Mm. Slavery was... Um, a road to privilege in right. some respects. I don't, I'm not speaking in favour of slavery. Mm. And of course, there's a negative side. There's a huge, rather hard to determine negative side of, of abuse of exploitation, mm. particularly what greatly interests the contemporary world, the presumed sexual exploitation of people in slavery. Very hard to find evidence for it, but one assumes that happened. Mm. Mm. And so, um, Certainly there was an abusive potential in slavery, mm. but there's also an entirely unimaginable to us, I think, uh, degree into which the system of servitude underwrote the whole civilization and structure of the Roman Empire uh, at a detailed level even, and in ordinary people's households. Um, basically, any self-respecting person would hope to reach the stage where he didn't have to work. Work was regarded as a bad thing right. in the Greek, Greco-Roman culture. Leisure was the ideal. Mm. And a person with money, if you made money, you provided yourself with a leisured life. All the work in your household and raising your income on the farm and so on was done by people you owned in slavery. Mm. You made it up to them by giving them a decent life too. They could go to the baths with you. Mm. You could go into the same bath with the person who ran the Roman Empire and your slaves all naked together. Mm. I mean, there were boundaries, of course, very important legal boundaries, but one shouldn't think of the Roman world as somehow or other radically divided into slaves and free. You couldn't tell in the street mm. very often who was what. Mm. So I suppose then, in many ways, the ancient culture rested on slavery. For it, it, to did. Function. it did. It did. It was unimaginable in New Testament times for there not to be servants. And that's why um, there is no campaign in the New Testament to abolish slavery. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, what were the intellectual justifications for slavery? Oh, in the Greek philosophical tradition, it was crystal clear. The um, Aristotelian doctrine laid it down uh, and was not challenged that um, uh, slaves were slaves because they were intellectually and rationally inferior. That's what entitled them, as it were, to be slaves. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean at the ordinary level people functioned that way, but it, it was the theoretical justification. That's why it was not challenged. And yet at the human level, we, we see lots and lots of cases where very modern-sounding recriminations and things arise between people. For example, a letter where a man who we think had been brought up in the house as a slave but was now an adult and still in servitude, writes to a younger man who had been brought up with this older one and the young one is, say, now 18 years of age and is living up to his birthright, which is not slavery. In other words, these two had been boys together in the same house and the older one, who we assume was, was in servitude had 
carried the younger one around when they were little ones, and they'd been buddies. And now as an adult, you'd think he would have known this. Of course he would have known it theoretically, uh, that their ways would part. But this is a, a heart-rending letter from the adult man, angrily repudiating the younger man who is now giving him the cold shoulder because they shared their boyhood together. Now, in every household in the Roman world, it would have been like that. The children would grow up together with no distinctions. Uh, and yet the distinctions were enforced at the adult level and, and were painful. They were humanly painful. Mm. Nobody was arguing about rationality then. It was a, exactly the same human sensations that which one's familiar with with modern slavery and so on. Mm. As part of bigger questions, we also reflect on the Bible. And we'll look at a couple of parts of the New Testament which refer to slavery. The first is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, Edwin, what is Paul saying here? Well, it's interesting, the, the three great disjunctions, they're different from each other. Mm -hmm. The Jew and Greek one is an ethnic and cultural history distinction, deeply imprinted, and people crossed back and forth, or were both at once, as it were, mm -hmm. The male and female distinction goes back in the biblical tradition to creation itself, and self-evidently that must be the case. How does procreation arise mm -hmm. except by having male and female? And what is the status then of slave and free? Obviously Paul no more questions uh, that than he does question the others. Yet in each of these three cases... He does argue it out over how to live with the difference mm -hmm. and at what point does the difference disappear. Now, the point is quite clear. It's just the meaning is not so clear. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What that means is that on commitment to Christ and participating in him in that mysterious, simple axiom that Paul uses, a kind of new life, as it were, is lived in Christ, a simple statement that bears extensive weighing up. This supersedes in some way the slave-free difference, and yet Paul is not arguing for abolition. Mm. Uh, and in my opinion, I make a useful distinction in matters like this between what I call rank and what we may call status. These three disjunctions, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, are, in my terminology, ranking matters. People are ranked in the community and marked, and you can easily tell and identify who is and who isn't and so on. Mm. And these things, although they're of different origin, one going back to creation itself, um, others not, but these are so much part of the customary scene that expectations attach to them, conventions and so on. And that's what I mean by rank. We're, in every community, we all have a ranking position. The conventionally established and expected ways of behaving with each other. And it's this which makes a community coherent. Uh, this is the ethical side of a community. By ethics, we simply mean uh, entrenched custom and, 
and generally accepted custom, not argue, argued position. You don't, have to, you don't have to argue about whether you're a Jew or a Greek, <laughs> a slave or a free. It's clear. Mm. And so, you, and you don't even have to justify it. But it's, it's validation and reason for not abolishing it. It's simply it's part of the customary structure of the community. But it does not give you status privileges. This is what Paul makes about uh, slave and free. Um, uh, the slaves are to uh, not be downtrodden and they are to function in Christ exactly the same whether they're slave or free. That is the, the behavioural status behaviour, to use my term, is rejected. Mm -hmm. uh, lording it over your slaves is rejected. Being um, brutal to them is rejected and so on. Slaves for their part are urged by Paul to uh, conscientiously fulfil their obligations, their ranking duties, and in this way, therefore, an, a new human bonding in Christ is created for people whose community structure nevertheless separates them. Mm. But in Christ, wherever that may be thought to be, in practical terms, like what does it mean in the household, etc., or in the church meeting or what, and of course it's something much loftier than that I know that is being referred to the it's the world the Christ is the stands for the world that is about to break upon us mm. the world for which uh, we are being saved as it were in that world which is here now for Paul already there in Christ mm. as believers and so there is no status to be asserted against each other all are the same so with this destruction of status that Paul is describing here, would, would that have been radical to his original hearers here? Yes, it is radical because um, it's provocative. That letter I referred to by the presumed slave complaining about how the young freeborn playmate was lording it over him now, mm. this shows the burning reality of ordinary human relations, that is, the bursting in of status mm. and the objection to it. In the classical philosophical system, the good are there by nature and the bad people are there by nature. So good and bad are part of the rational order philosophically. And when the first critics of the Christians got going at the philosophical level in the second century, they complained of the immorality of the Christians in treating the bad people as though they were not bad, but caring about them, for example, when self-evidently on classical principles, you should prefer the good. Obviously, the good is more rational, according to a rational universe. But the Christians were upending that all the time. It was vulgar and disgusting. In fact, Celsus, the great critic, said they are like worms in a dunghill. That's the Christians, arguing about which of them is the worst sinner. It, the thing was horrifying mm. to classically educated philosophical people that one should actually focus on the worst people and their problems. Another passage we're looking at is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, which speaks about slaves and masters and their relationships. So it says, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And then in verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way, 
do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So what do you make of these passages? Yes, favoritism, you see, is the key word. The Greek word which it's translating, can't think of a good English equivalent offhand, but um, it's outward appearances, good, your good looks and that kind of thing is what it's talking about. So we all operate, of course, with liking and disliking. We can't do anything about it. We have instantaneous reactions without any rational basis. We like one thing and dislike another. And this is a key part of um, our lives, and yet we don't know how to regulate it. And what Paul is saying here is that in Christ we have to master our superficial likes and dislikes and recognise that Christ treats slave and free as the same. Mm. That's what he's saying. Mm. Now, the New Testament offers no criticism of the social institution of slavery. Is there any reason that the New Testament doesn't prescribe a plan to abolish slavery? Well, I've already indicated, I think, that it's virtually inconceivable that uh, an abolition movement could have got going. There were not movements of reform of any kind in the ancient world. The word reform occurs, it's a Latin word, it occurs first in the time of Christ in a known writer of it, a poet in Augustus's time, and guess what it means? Not that something is going to change, but the very opposite. Reform means going back to the form you were in before. Mm. It is very hard for historians to approach ancient history with this reformist conception of how the world works because it's real. Mm. The world is changing. So we write as though the Romans were discussing reforms. They were not discussing reforms. Their worldview did not anticipate that. Mm. The, the very word new was often a pejorative term in antiquity. Innovation um, uh, could become a negative word. And... And yet newness is the key word of the New Testament and it's the key word in our culture now. Mm. Everybody in our culture just assumes if it's new, you need to buy it. Mm. And so new is the 100% positive in our culture. That comes out of the New Testament, mm. not out of the classical culture. What was valuable always was what was old mm. for the simple reason that the universe was, was fixed and therefore whatever is good already existed. You didn't have to do anything better. Mm. Change would be bad. Mm. So therefore there was no need to change the institution of slavery. There was no conceptual possibility of reform happening. Now, renowned, does this, I wonder if this challenges uh, Rodney Stark's view. Now, Rodney Stark is a renowned writer and sociologist. He wrote, just as science arose only once, so too did effective moral opposition to slavery. And he claims that Christian theology was essential to both. Do you agree with Stark's appraisal? Yeah, I think I do. There's a key phrase in Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Everyone should remain in the state to which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Never mind. Uh, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. This translation, which I'm working from, is, I think, right, and one of our own researchers here at Macquarie University has linguistically established that that is the correct translation of it. So there is latent and explicit in 
in this particular passage, in Paul's conception of the meaninglessness of slavery in Christ, there is latent the uh, positive view of emancipation. And do it if you can. I mean, people were willing to give slaves their pocket money and so on, mm. so they could buy their way out. And many Roman slave owners actively practiced emancipation after the age of 30. You weren't allowed to emancipate until the slaves were 30 years of age. But it was advantageous for many Roman owners to um, emancipate after 30 because the people then had a, an ongoing bond and function in the household and would exercise it as a freedman. And it was emotionally a far more satisfactory one for both parties. Mm. So slavery becomes a kind of um, broadening process of opportunity. Now, I know, of course, there are negative sides, and of course there was brutality, in, but the legal structure had positive value as an ameliorating process, in my view. And I think that's the general view of ancient historians. Mm. So, Edwin, your final thoughts. Do the Christian scriptures condone slavery? Paul is not overthrowing the heritage of Israel. He, he accepts them, the distinction circumstantially. He prescribes, it's not too strong a word, to both servants and masters an egalitarian way as humans of relating to each other as though there were no difference in Christ. A really unique thing about the letters of Paul that people don't really notice is that he is actually writing to people who are in slavery. I don't think anybody elsewhere in the ancient world wrote letters to people who were in slavery. Mm. And the communities that Paul was addressing where these questions arose were mixed in, in a way that was outside the normal experience. The people were sitting, they were together in a meeting in Christ, in an actual meeting, in the household, in the very household where some were masters and some were slaves, but in their meeting together to do whatever they did when meeting in Christ, it made no difference whether you were a slave or not. Now, that is not condoning slavery in my view. Mm. It is anticipating that it would disappear in Christ. And in fact, it is this teaching which did inspire the great emancipatory movement against 19th century slavery, which broke it down in at least Western countries, mm. not elsewhere. It goes on. So would it be fair to say that whilst Paul didn't explicitly uh, call for the abolition of slavery, the seeds of its demise were there in his writings? For certain, and uh, it's unrealistic to say he should have called for it, uh, abolition. It's not how the world worked then. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, does the Bible condone slavery? From Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Many thanks to our guest today, Professor Edwin Judge. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.